Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Khan, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called Forget Goals, Create Systems, Foundations of a Sustainable Bootstrap Business. Let's get started. When you're starting with your business idea, you will be looking at how successful businesses have accomplished their success. You'll see a lot of different sizes and markets and business models, but they all have one thing in common. They've built a system that works. Their long-term and short-term goals may have changed through the years, but the system that kept them running never did. That system is the core of every business. A sustainable bootstrap business is successful when you've found a repeatable, reliable, and resilient system to continuously provide a value-producing product to paying customers at a profit. Now, since system is such an abstract term, look at it as a set of rules and guidelines, like a recipe. To make a tasty omelet, you'll need to mix the right ingredients and cook them for the right time at the right temperature using a specific technique. A business is the exact same thing. Having a recipe in place will make the transition from the preparation stage towards the survival stage of your business much less chaotic. No plan survives the first contact with the enemy, but it's still important to think of the core growth engine of your business before you start selling your product to your audience. And a quick remark about goals at this point. Of course, you should have goals. The business without goals is an aimless venture, but goals are reached and overcome. New goals arrive in their place, and they often change shape mid-operation. A goal is meant to become obsolete. A system is intended to endure and allow you to reach your goals in the first place. So let's take a look into each of the properties such a system will need to have. The first property is repeatability, building a repeatable system. When you're building a bootstrap business, it'll usually be just you in the beginning. Maybe you have a co-founder or two, but you won't have an army of salespeople that you can unleash on your audience. Your business needs to be a one-person show, and that means you'll need to sell your product to your customers over and over again yourself. For that, generating revenue needs to be an easily repeatable process. At best, you're building a way to capture a never-ending stream of recurring revenue. The optimal situation is when you grow every month and your revenue consistently increases. You'll have to re- you'll have reached that state when you create a subscription business with negative churn. In a subscription-based business, churn is the percentage of users um, that discontinue their subscription month over month. Churn hurts your growth and it hurts it twice because for each churned customer, you will find you well you need to find a new customer just to get back to net zero. To grow, you effectively need two new customers when someone churns. Negative churn happens when the customers who stay with your business spend more time and money on upgrades than you lose from customers canceling. That's the holy grail of subscription businesses, by the way. When your churn is negative, you don't even need to add more customers to grow. Every new customer is a bonus. And that is quite amazing. The fewest of the businesses that I've seen actually reach that point, but it's still quite the aspirational goal to have. But before you can get there, a lot of work needs to be done. You'll figure out a starting point for your pricing and you'll tweak it over time. And at some point, you'll need to offer ways for your customers to actually upgrade their subscriptions for, to allow for this expansion revenue. You'll need to keep your retention 
of your customers as high as possible and maximize the influx of new prospects. All of this is so much easier if the process that you need to acquire a new customer that you use for that is straightforward and repeatable. Usually means automated and self-serve and kind of low-touch environment. Because if it's not, you'll need to make sales manually, which takes away attention from building your product and creating an automated and well-documented business that is built to sell. So the fewer steps there are to your process of acquiring a new customer, the better. Optimally, they'll come to your marketing content, they sign up to your product, have their wow and aha moment, and then subscribe. Of course, each of these steps is incredibly hard to pull off. And that's the entrepreneurial challenge. So fewer steps means fewer chances chances of losing your prospect. So keep the process slim. And that will make it more repeatable as well. So look, looking at the second point, building a reliable system, reliability. Providing a reliable system and a reliable service sounds easier than it is. You might have set up everything to be well-tested and highly available, only to find that your payment provider has a small glitch that's affecting customers in a particular state or a particular country. Or your email service is being flagged as spam by Google Mail, so that all those emails you sent out yesterday never arrived in your customers' inboxes. These things happened to us at Feedback Panda, and we had to find ways to circumvent these kind of issues. Being reliable does not mean perfect, right? It doesn't mean being a perfect system. It just means that your product is built with maximizing availability and performance in mind. No customer really wants to use a sluggish or an unreliable product. And this requires two kinds of reliability, architectural and operational reliability. Architectural reliability measures how well your service is designed to provide uninterrupted access to your product to your customers. And operational reliability measures the effectiveness of your system to cope with external interruptions. Because for every external service you use, you will need to do some research. You need to look into support forums, their status pages, and then social media, social media, and you need to find previous occurrences of service outages and check how quickly they were resolved and pay particular attention to people complaining about not receiving help from these businesses and social media and reach out to those people. Ask about how they handle the situation. And you will learn a lot about what you will need to prepare for in that way. In any case, create a process for reaching out to your customers when something goes wrong, because it will. And prepare a message stating that you're working on it with some sort of apology and the promise to get back to them as quickly as you can. And then keep this message in a note where you can quickly copy it. This has two purposes that we found really useful. First, it reduces the cognitive effort of responding to customers during an emergency or maintenance or an outage of different degrees of emergency, I guess. And it will allow your customers um, to spread a comprehensive message to their peers, which then reduces the number of incoming messages. Nothing is more distracting when you're trying to restore your production system, true story, I guess, than hundreds of customers reaching out about your product not working. Keeps you from actually working on the thing that you need to resolve just responding to people is going to eat your time. So having something in place, if it's just a message you can copy and paste to reach out to people with or respond to them and their questions, that will save you a lot of time. And that is in itself a reliable system because you convey information. That's important. You can hope, I guess, that you'll never have a fatal outage in your business or you can prepare and build a reliable product and a business. 
might take some work, but having the basis covered will give you peace of mind, both when everything works fine, because then obviously you don't need to think about it, and when things are a bit rough. Yeah. Just reducing the level of anxiety about a situation that may never come by being prepared for it is going to be very helpful. I found that to be uh, personally important to myself because I had a, a quite the high level of anxiety about things breaking. So I built those systems and I, I guess, luckily didn't have to use them too much. But when I did, I was really glad that I had something in place. And that brings us to part number three, the resiliency, right? Building a resilient system. Resiliency is different from reliability in that it looks at your business over a long time, long period of time, instead of just being focused on mere moments, incidents. A resilient business is capable of surviving in an ever-changing market. Today, you might have hundreds of customers, but some regulation might make 90% of them cancel tomorrow. If you set up your business to be resilient, you'll be able to survive situations like that. So let's talk about a couple of attributes that a resilient business has. I think the the most important one is that a resilient business is independent. If you have 500 customers, one of them quitting is not a big deal. But if you have five customers, a single cancellation can cost you 20% or more of your revenue. It's hard to diversify when you're in a very homogenous niche, and I understand that. But you can build resiliency into your product even then by offering yearly subscriptions as that will capture advanced revenue and allows you to make the necessary changes to adapt to different circumstances because you have some runway. So even within a niche, you have means to build a more resilient business. And it's very important that you don't depend on individual customers. Common problem in the B2B world, I guess, for businesses to grab like three, four big customers and then kind of yeah, stopping there because it's enough revenue, but it's, it's highly dangerous and risky revenue because if they break away, then all of a sudden you lose revenue and they can use that as a threat to coerce you into doing something that you might not want to do because it's not the perfect thing for your business, but it certainly would be good for them so they can use that as leverage against you. You kind of don't want that. I would rather have a couple hundred customers that don't have that sort of leverage over me and have a bit more work when it comes to customer service than having three or four big ones and having to bend to every whim. So that's independence. A resilient business is also adaptive. I talked about this earlier with the payment processor. If your payment processor shuts off your account or freezes your funds, your system, and by that I mean both your infrastructure, your technical solution, and your business, should be able to integrate an alternative processor quite quickly. You have enough data in your database to restore your revenue, ideally. You know which plans your users were on and when they were supposed to renew. That is information you really need to keep to be able to be adaptive. They might need to re-enter their payment information, like their credit card or something, but at least the continuity of their subscription is guaranteed that way. And the same is true for authentication services. Always have their email address in your database, even if you use an identity as a service solution. In case that one breaks or you need to move away from it, for some reason you can still reach your customers. So being able to adapt kind of requires you to preemptively capture enough information to be able to restore the relevant parts of your relationship with your customers, which is communication and payment exchange, these transactions. So 
Another thing a resilient business is, or should be, is extensible. Because if you can be integrated with easily, your service will become part of the broader ecosystem of tools in your niche. And more and more other services will interact with you, bringing with them a steady flow of new leads and reputation within the community. If your processes allow you to quickly build integrations into new and exciting services in your niche, your product will provide your customers with additional ways of making their lives easier. And all of this to say independence, adaptiveness, and extensibility, your business and your product should be around for a long time. So these processes and architectural decisions that increase resilience will make sure it has a chance to endure. There are several advanced concepts here to help entrepreneurs structure their businesses like this. While most of them are aimed at larger enterprises, it's there's still a couple of interesting ones here. The Entrepreneurial Operating System, short EOS, has been used successfully in many bootstrap companies so far. It aligns and strengthens the six key components of any business. The alignment on your vision, the real-world data, your people, your team, your critical issues, your processes that systemize consistency, and traction to bring discipline and accountability into your business. So that's what EOS is all about. It's definitely a good system to look into from the beginning to see how you want your future business to be structured and what needs to be prepared and what kinds of changes you can expect to encounter. I would suggest reading up on this if you're interested in structuring your business in a more sensible way. It's not necessarily important for every bootstrap business. And if you're small and don't expect to grow too far, um, we didn't use it. I've seen it used with other businesses, but we were a two-person company really didn't need a system like this, but the moment you grow bigger, it becomes more interesting. And that is a good segue to the next point, because I want to talk about the evolution of systems here. Because a repeatable, reliable, and resilient system will need to be consistently and continuously refined and improved. Your customers will change their methods and their requirements. New regulations will be needed to respond, be, be responded to. And this is the heart of your operation, right? It must never stop working. Every day, it must deliver as much or more as the day before. So that will take some fine-tuning over time. You'll never be done making sure it's working correctly. And every time something inside or outside of your business changes, you might need to adjust your system. It doesn't always have to be bad. Sometimes you'll be able to remove a step because a new technology enables you to automate a previously manual action fully, completely. As long as you regularly check in, with your process and your assumptions, your system will continue to work for you. When you start feeling some friction where there was none before, you're starting to work on the system, right? You have to reflect on what changed, how to respond to it, and with the current knowledge, adjust your process. You've been doing your let's yeah, let's say you've been doing your marketing on Facebook, but customers come through Instagram more and more. Well, adjust. Extend your Facebook campaigns to also be shown on Instagram or engage a test audience with visual content that you make particularly for that platform. If that works, you'll slowly shift your focus to the new platform and adjust your content marketing processes to fit that one best. Over time, the number and the complexity of your processes will likely grow. At the beginning of your business, you'll want to be flexible, but don't mistake that for winging it. Write down what you do, why you do it. So you can eventually turn your evolving system into some sort of collection of standard operating procedures or an operations manual. Having everything documented that way will make your company a well-oiled machine and that will make it more sellable, even if you don't intend to sell. And 
let me talk a bit about how we make sure that Feedback Panda was built on systems like this that I've just described. It was quite a challenge to do this. And I want to mention the kinds of distractions that might keep you from working on your business systematically, because there are many, many reasons why you can get systems wrong. So I want to bring them out in the open so you can be aware um, when they're knocking on your door. It's hard to think about a process on any abstract level when you're in the middle of things. When you have a number of customer service conversations waiting and you're just trying to respond to one of them, you often don't want to take the time to turn the conversation you just had into a knowledge base article before responding to the others. You just want to quickly help your other customers. And to be honest, the quick solution is quicker, right? And it's often appropriate for the situation. Sometimes documenting a process just doesn't fit into your schedule. And at least at that moment, instead of doing it, because I know you won't in these situations, I never did. Just make a note, write down the task on a post-it and just get back to it at some other point. Because if you don't, you'll do the same work twice or many, many times over if you don't document it early or at least very proximate, very close to the actual activity. And here's another thing. It's always too early or too late for something like documentation. At least that's how my mind worked. Like whenever I thought about it, there was always, ah, it didn't feel like the right time. It takes some discipline to do this because it's a chore. And there's so many other things that you could do instead. And they feel much more urgent and maybe even much more important. But deferring any part of this until much later will cause you a lot of work during or shortly before your due diligence, if you have a sell. And that can be overwhelming at that point. Not only will it be a a lot of documentation work at once, which to most people is hilariously boring and draining, it will also interfere with your regular work, keeping the business running at that point. And having the numbers dip because you need to do other things is a very bad sign for your acquirer in an already tense and very yeah, strongly observed situation, right? When you're doing due diligence, essentially the your potential acquirer, the buyer of your business will look into your business very closely. So seeing stuff drop at that point because you need to write documents is, uh, yeah, it's not a good sign. It might be a red flag for somebody to see that if you don't spend all your time and focus on the business, the numbers go down. So prevent that by having stuff in place. And luckily, we had all of that stuff in place when we went through our due diligence. But even then, we still had to create a few documents that we had missed. So prepare early. Just get that stuff done early and you won't run into this kind of additional work at crunch time. Finally, not all systems age equally well. If you start with a markdown document full of pre-written replies to common questions, that will work for you. And it probably will work for you and your co-founder for many years. But you may need something else once you onboard employees tasked with customer service or something like that. You'll need to constantly revisit your systems and the ways they are established. Because circumstances change and you need to adapt your systems to them. So yeah, that, that is, I think what I learned in running Feedback Panda that systems are it's, it's not easy it's not easy to set things up in a purely abstract and bird's, uh, bird's eye perspective kind of view because you're in the middle of stuff and there's always something else and once you set something up you kind of want to have it, have it stick around forever and it doesn't always work alright this week 
I asked on Twitter if you have any questions about this topic, and I'll answer a number of those questions now because they're very closely related to what I was just talking about. Karen asked, what platform or software did we use to document our systems? So initially, we used a number of different ways of documenting our systems and processes. We used Word documents, uh, Markdown files, um, used Google Docs and Insight. Uh, we, we, yeah, we, we kind of had our data inside the databases of the third-party applications that we used and their notes sections or whatever, and intercom and stuff. It was spread out all, of, all over the place. At some point, I started consolidating all of this into a Google Drive. Um, yeah, Danielle got her documents in, I got my documents in, and we started cross-linking all of these um, Google spreadsheets, Google Sheets, um, what else, like Google Docs kind of things into each other and between each other. And if we... Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think that was that was good because it was easy to hand over at that point, all the documents being in one place. But if we had to do this again from the start... I would likely go the Google Drive route from the beginning, just put everything in there instead of keeping it in all these different places or look into specific solutions that I've found since for documenting SOPs, standard operating procedures and processes. There are SaaS solutions for this out there. Like there's obviously SaaS solutions for everything, but there are a couple of really interesting ones. Just going to name them here if you want to research them. There's one called Way We Do. There's another one called Sweet Process, and then there's one called Process Street. All three of them essentially are SaaS applications where you can easily track and template your operating procedures, built an operations manual for your business, essentially. It's really useful if you have employees. I guess for small SaaS, a Google Doc will be enough or a collection of Google Docs, but once you have to or plan to onboard multiple employees, I would suggest looking into specific solutions. So start out with a Google Doc and then see how quickly you need to use a specific SaaS solution for documentation and process manual kind of stuff. Fenske asked about finding the balance between investing time into making a reliable infrastructure versus moving fast enough with the product itself. That's a very interesting question. I think in the beginning of our business, um, or in the beginning of any business, you'll have early adopters as your customers and they will be much more forgiving when it comes to outages or maintenance so i would suggest focusing on product until the product itself is durable and functionally complete for solving the critical problem of your customers then spend time on infrastructure resiliency because a great product with 97 percent uptime that's used by many has much more potential to result in a sustainable business than a mediocre product with 99.99 percent uptime that is used by no one right the resiliency of your product is great but you kind of need to have it be used by people for you to actually be able to uh, get revenue from it so i would always focus on product first of course make it a baseline reliability like build a system in place that if your servers explode if they fall over something gets automatically restarted but you don't need like sub-second um, maintenance windows or stuff like that. Just build something that is that works well enough that essentially build alerting into this that you get alerted as quickly as possible if something is wrong so you can take care of it. But don't completely over-automate and over-engineer a reliable infrastructure when the product is the thing that makes you money. So focus on the product, I guess, would be my advice here. 
And finally, Rich asked, which 20% of the systems we created for Feedback Panda um, did we find gave us the best return of investment early on? <laughs> well, I would say all of the systems that automated customer-facing tasks, they were significant ROI generators for us. Two of them in particular, I think, are Dunning system that told our customers who had their credit card charges blocked where to go and unblock them by calling their banks. That one was particularly useful as it saved us hours every single day because we would do that manually, reach out to the 10, 12 people that uh, during the nights that we that we slept had their credit card um, charges blocked by their banks because we were a German company and U.S. banks have a problem with um international transfers and transactions. So lots of these were blocked and really every customer had to do the same, essentially had to call that bank and say, no, this is fine. And then we would reattempt it and then it would go through. So this kind of system we built after a couple weeks or maybe even months of doing it manually every day, which was hours at some point. Um, And that was a lot. Um, First off, because it also kind of not only did it save us the time, it was also much more reliable than we were in finding the people whose charges didn't work out and giving them the right information immediately when they needed it. So that was really helpful. So anything that automates this. And this, the second kind of automation we had in place, second system was the um, process of turning customer service conversations into help desk articles immediately at after having the conversation with the customer. I mentioned this earlier as something that I sometimes struggled with, but having that as a process made us aware that it needed to be done. And it resulted by eventually getting around to it in incredible load reductions on our customer service desk. Because with every article that we wrote that solved the customer's problem, this problem would again be solved automatically the next time somebody asked for it. Using Intercom, um, if people ask for certain keywords, the Intercom algorithms in the background are smart enough to detect which kind of articles in your knowledge base would fit and suggest that automatically. So if you have solved that question before, the article will be immediately suggested and you don't even have to respond to your customer service inquiry because the person will very likely to be able to solve the problem themselves. So that kind of self-service help desk kind of stuff, that was one of the best investments we made alongside the Dunning. So everything that is facing the customer that can be automated without feeling mechanical was a great return of investment. Some of these things we would still need to communicate uh, with people about problems that we couldn't solve automatically or credit cards, problems that were not easily um, solved by just calling the bank. So these kind of things, we still needed to reach out to them in person, but it's like 5% of what before was 100%, right? And that is a significant return of investment. All right, so that, I guess, were the questions that I picked. Um, And thank you for listening to this episode of the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you subscribe to this podcast. It'll help other founders and founders-to-be find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.